Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. And welcome to another episode of the pod. We have an amazing guest mentor with us today. We have Katrina McKinnon, who is the founder of Copysmith.com. Welcome to the pod, Katrina. Jason, thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to a, a very interesting discussion. As am I. And we were joking off air about uh, my very strange accent. And I spent a lot of time down in your neck of the woods up until February of this year when I moved to Mexico. But you are based in the beautiful city of Sydney. Yes, your accent is quite the mangle, isn't it? That's what we might call it. A bit of a mangle of different accents. And normally you're saying, normally I get asked, people say, are you from England? And I say, no, but it's very sweet of you to say so. I'm actually Australian, but yeah, I can't imagine having quite your mangle of Kiwi plus everything else. It's good though. Yes. Yeah. My dog still understands me. We brought our dog from New Zealand to Mexico with us and he still understands me. So that's quite good. I'm trying to start teaching him some Spanish words. He, I'm pretty sure he speaks English very well. Hey, he, he pretends at times to not understand what I'm saying, but I'm certain he understands what I'm saying. And so now I'm trying to, trying to teach him a few Spanish words while we're at it. The whole wait at the street corner. So he, he waits to cross telling him he has to espera days. It's good. It's good. I think learning multiple languages is a good thing. And there's always the fallback of a whistle. A whistle is a universal language. You can always do that. It is. It is. And I can whistle very loudly. And he, even if he's not paying attention, he will actually pay attention to that, which has saved him from running out in the road on a few occasions. But speaking of language, you are the master of language. You are a professional copywriter. And I wanted to get you on more than anything else to better understand the power of copywriting, the power of persuasive copy, the power of language, the ability to sell through language, the ability to convince through language, the ability to educate through language, and also to cover a little bit more about how AI is starting to, or Gen AI specifically, is starting to impact the industry of copywriting, the industry of creativity, the industry of conversation, and being able to have the storytelling capability as part of your uh, repertoire in communicating with the wider world. But before we get into that specifically, how the heck did you come to be in this space in the first place? So it was basically because the, the way I got into this in the first place was because I was just throwing everything at the wall. I was panicking. I didn't know what I was doing. I was incredibly, wonderfully, brilliantly average at a lot of things. So I actually ran an agency for 20 years and I, we did paid marketing, we did socials, we did web development, we did copy, we did content writing. We did everything and I was exceptionally average at all of it. So we could keep everything ticking along and all the balls in the air. It was completely fine. I didn't stuff it up, didn't break anything too badly. But we had this one client and they were absolutely desperate for traffic and they were already tapped out in, or maxed out, I should say, in Facebook ads and they, and also Google ads. They were spending twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month in those avenues, and they just couldn't get any sort of traction with it. And we were at the time just helping them with bits and pieces on their website, and they said, "What can you do for us?" And, and so I said, "Oh, I'll try nothing. I'm sure I can fix something with all my experience. I'm sure I can do something about this." Anyway, I panicked and just thought, "I'll just throw everything at the wall." And so I just wrote. We wrote and wrote. We had a team of uh, two or three writers. 
And we um, did our keyword research and we wrote as much content as we possibly could. That was really a fantastic match for the audience, what the audience wanted to hear. We also put a lot of visuals in it and we put, we put a lot of PDFs together, a lot of assets that went along with this content. So it wasn't just text. Anyway, fast forward 14, 15 months, we actually had a competitor call us up and say, look, you've taken so much of our traffic. We'd like to do a deal with you. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And anyway, it turns out that we had taken this client from 800 uniques a month. So unique visitors to their website to 150,000 unique visitors a month and 250,000 page views. And we were able to get half of those people through to their sales landing page, all of this sort of thing. And so it was really just like my key, if I could just give advice to everyone is just my key to success is just panic and just do everything. And don't worry about what the experts say. Don't worry about strategically planning and following a step-by-step. It was really just a major panic, but I joke about that, Jason, but we just love creating content and we love telling stories. You said in your intro as well, that storytelling is a major component to finding engagement. So of course you can't be successful without a bit of a plan. But um, yeah, that's how we got into it. And so then I realized I like this. We're good at it. So let's just do this and forget about all the other things that I was terribly, awfully average at. It's interesting that you bring that up specifically because I follow a lot of creators in our space and I find that I, and I'm praying that I don't ever get lumped into this bucket. I find that there's a lot of same. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of standard tropes and advice that gets recycled and upcycled and People take quotes from Tony Robbins and they take quotes from Carrie V and they try to weave this kind of quasi story around something that they're trying to sell. And it never really resonates with me. And even some of the podcasts that I listen to, they're so generic in nature that I kind of tune out and they don't, they don't really haven't grasped the ability of how to weave this into a story that is super entertaining and super compelling whilst also communicating something of value. But one person that I follow in particular, I think is just an absolute genius at this is Cody Sanchez. And she is, she is an abs, in in my opinion, she's probably one of the best storytellers in the creator community online that I've come across. And almost every single piece of content from her is compelling. It's entertaining. It's engaging. It is, it's visually enticing. It's she's been able to bring lots of different components together to create content that tells a story that you almost can't look away from, even if it's even if it's only a small piece of content, even if it's just one post on Instagram. And I just find that there are so few people in the world. Lots of us can talk and lots of us have the personality to be able to talk and to write. But crafting compelling stories is a gift as far as I can tell. Would would you say that's accurate or is that something you can learn? No, it's incredibly hard to do. So the first thing you need to do is literally um, block out all the other narratives. You need to block out everyone else's stories. You need to just focus on what it is that you want to say and you need to have to trust in it. So when I say I panicked and threw everything at the wall, it really is trusting your own voice because you step back. And I had to do this for another client as well. And I had to step back and think, I'm not going to follow all the typical SEO advice. What is it? What is it that I'm going to do? What is it that I want to contribute? And when I get stuck in those moments, instead of selling, what I say is, how can I help someone? How can I give? 
And then how can I give a little bit more and how can I educate? And I find that that tends to unlock the creative process for me personally. So there's always something in your arsenal that will allow you to unlock that unique voice. But again, Jason, it is incredibly difficult to create an authentic voice and a a consistent tone of voice to create storytelling. And unfortunately, AI has come out and everyone thinks that content's so much easier. Everyone thinks content's really easy. And it's only when you actually do it yourself and you go through that battle of trying to create it and do it consistently, that's when you realize that it is. It's so difficult to create that narrative, that compelling narrative that can build up a brand and create connection with clients and customers. But yeah, it's, it is a tricky thing. I couldn't agree more. And I, if I just use myself as an example, I think that whilst I've been a pretty much full-time creator in addition to my day job as a consultant and working in the industry, I've been almost a full-time creator creating some form of content almost every single day for about seven and a bit years now. I would say still, even despite all that experience creating content, that it's really only the last 12 to 18 months that I have been able to really start to get super consistent around the branding around my content, the intros, the outros, the styling, the tone, the always been super honest. And that's, I guess, part of my brand character and almost to a fault and blunt in some respects. But I guess bringing a super level of consistency to the way in which my personal brand, for lack of a better term, is portrayed to the world, that has taken time to refine over the years. And sure, when I first got into it, I was just putting out content that I enjoyed, that I felt like I would want to see and read and hear if I was on the receiving end of that, that I didn't really see anybody else putting out that same type of content. I was just trying to, I was just trying to commit to putting out something every day. And it was Gary Vee that kicked my ass to make me do that. He said, and I remember this, he just kept hammering home eight years ago. If you freaking think you're a thought leader, then put your thoughts out in the world and let's find out. But you, unless you open your thoughts up to critique by the wider world, then how can you be considered a thought leader? How, if, if, it can, if there can't be robust debate around your content that you're putting out and your thoughts, if you're not putting those out into the world on a regular basis, then how can you th- think that you're a thought leader? And I was like, wow, that's so profound. It's so simple, but it's so profound. And he just kept kicking my ass with every piece of content he put out. He said, put your money where your mouth is. Shut the fuck up and start putting content out there into the world. And I was like, okay, I, I give up, Gary Vee. I'm going to start creating every single day. And, and sure, I've missed a few days, but I'm pretty consistent with it now. But how do people get consistent with creating content? Yeah, and I think it's a tricky thing if you're not an extrovert. So if you don't, aren't comfortable with the sound of your own voice, it's a bit like hearing your own voice on the sound of the answering machine. It takes a while to uh, get used to that. You've touched on so many things there, but being an extrovert makes it a little bit easier because you don't, you just think, I'll just kick my button, I'll go and I'll just put it out and I know I'll work it out over time. That comes with confidence of inherent confidence with voice and being extrovert. Companies that a founder might start out managing all their marketing and all their tone of voice and all their content. But after a while, when you grow as a business and you've got 20 people in the warehouse working for you, you don't have time to keep curating that voice. So you have to find either find someone that you trust, but you have to be very systems oriented. So you either have to find a brand ambassador that you can trust to produce that content at scale. And that's the really tricky thing as well. There's a lot of tools these days that will allow people to produce that content at scale, but it can fall flat. So the first thing you need to do is have a very strong visual. So in our case, we have black and uh, yellow, bright yellow, and we have 
very particular illustrations that we create and they're a little bit quirky. So we know that our visual identity, even though it might not be the best in the world, it's still a very strong visual identity. It's not blue and white or something. And, but then it's a matter of testing yourself what works and then locking down those little bits into a process with someone that you can trust to produce, reproduce that tone of voice. So in our team, we're able to produce content at scale because we brief it in very carefully and we spend time giving feedback on what that tone of voice is. And we do a lot of screencasts and video to communicate what that might be. So I would say for anyone who's listening that what you need to do is you need to do the first one and then you need to find someone that you can trust to keep producing that in that similar way or to be able to get your your thoughts into a format that resonates with you back again. And then use screencasts to keep tweaking that message, to keep saying, look, I don't like this or I do like that. That's the first step. And then after a while, you'll find a marketing consultant or a a fractional CMO or someone like that who can then set up full systems that run that at scale. So Gary V, he produces all of that original content, but he's got a team of, he's got a team, a very tight team of people who've been working with him for years. I think it's about 30 now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so he's doing that at scale because he's created that narrative, that very strong narrative. It's actually, Jason, it's actually a very difficult thing to do at scale, but it's possible through processes. And it's also possible through just having patience. And as you say, you've taken two or three years to nail it for your own. But now that you've nailed it for your own, you could easily turn around and say, I understand how to do this now. And I can shorten that time for someone else for six months. But it is this, people have got to understand it's totally positive, possible, but it's an iterative process. Don't you think? It, it is. And I think even for me, it's only in the last six months that I've actually documented my end-to-end production process from capturing the content, creating the content to production, post-production, distribution, sub-distribution. And I've now distilled that down into 13 steps with some sub-steps sitting underneath that. But it, it really, and at this point, I would be able to, it would be easier for me to outsource certain components of that because I've now got a really concrete process and state in place to maintain consistency of that output or the outcomes. And, but up until that point, I I was still trialing. I was still testing. I was still practicing. I was still trying to codify exactly the best tools to use, the exact best process to use that would make me the most efficient and the most consistent. I was still trying to figure out what process worked best for me in the first place. And I think it make it's really difficult to brief in somebody to help you if you haven't codified your own process, if you haven't, if you haven't brought consistency to your own process, how, how the hell can you, how the hell can you brief someone or outsource it? Yeah. But it's also that some people aren't comfortable with even having themselves as that starting point. So one of the things that we've done is I don't mind getting on stage and talking to people and going on podcasts and all that sort of thing. But ultimately it's about the team. It's about the business and the business living for a long time after me, if possible. And so what I focus on is we focus on the narrative that Copysmiths is a team of people. Our team all come from Kenya. We are very deliberately higher in Kenya because the economic situation is quite difficult over there. Very high education levels, very high unemployment, English as first language, um, incredibly creative, intelligent people to work with. So we, at one point, we had 60 writers on the team. So I knew we were feeding 60 families. If you can, and that, that social good resonates with some clients. If you can wrap that, if you can codify that story into the narrative 
and say, this is, this is Denster. She's writing this particular article and we try to make our writers the heroes instead of me always being the hero just because I happen to have founded the company. But when you, if you're a, if you're a leader or you're a founder or a CEO of a company and you prefer to lead in the background, you can push your company forward and the social good that they are doing. And that in itself could be a narrative and that can guide that codifying process as well, because you can say, instead of me being the one who goes on the podcasts, maybe I share it around with the team or instead of me writing all the blog articles or instead of me controlling the Instagram, maybe that person has that particular voice and they control the Instagram. And so then it becomes a collective of individuals and humans creating content for different humans. So that's another way that businesses can access that initially until they can get it rolling a little bit better. And how do you work with brands that are so protective of their content and they're so controlling of their teams that it almost stifles any form of internal creativity that might be there or it puts the brakes on anyone in the business that might want to be the face of the business or might want to represent their business unit or their function or something like that and may want to be putting out content at scale in their own right. Their processes, their legal teams, etc. really just cut that to the quick. And I'll give you an example of who, someone who I think does it really well and someone, I won't name names, but someone that I think I've encountered challenges with. So I put out one of my episodes every week is for B2B brands. Usually it's, but it's all focused on B2B. And usually when I approach someone in a business that is a B2B business, that's doing e-commerce well, and I want to feature them on the podcast, oftentimes they're working for larger B2B businesses that are at scale already. And I was able to get the guys from Black & Decker onto the podcast. Now, they're a huge global multi-billion dollar business, right? And I was able to get the head of e-commerce onto the podcast with very little, like the, the, he didn't have to go through legal department and get approvals and all sorts of stuff. Basically, I asked him, he said yes, he booked it in, and two weeks later, he was a guest on the podcast. Now, conversely, there's a ton of brands that I reach out to and I say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Miss e-commerce manager, would you like to come on the podcast and talk about what you do over at X brand? Oh, I've got to go and talk to legal. Oh, they don't really like us going on podcasts. They don't really like us. Everything has to go through our PR team. Even if we said, yes, we, you would have to send over a recording of the podcast. We would have to vet it. It would have to get approval from legal before we could release the podcast. And I just think, wow, what level of creative disruption is going to have to come to these businesses for them to realize that actually freeing people and giving them the liberty to speak on behalf of the business and, and unshackling them is actually going to be good for business. Why is it that some brands just seem to get it, even if they're a billion-dollar global brand, and some brands that are, they might only be a $10 million a year brand, they completely lock down content output from their team members. What are, what are the things you're seeing that is creating this level of fear in these businesses that they just don't want their team members to be visible at all? Yeah, you're making me feel anxious just even talking about all of this, the anxiety levels are rising because people do, they get very tight with all of this and they want to control that brand. And when you control your narrative, when you control it, there's no space to come up with creative ideas or to find new directions. When you're very controlling and you say, this is the way we've always done it. This is the process we're going to use. Sometimes that does work. Sometimes that does work for companies. But when a new channel comes along, so let's say, I don't know, let's say Discord, is a relatively new channel that's come on. How does a brand, if they're not used to experimenting and failure, let's say they experimented with TikTok and they fail, 
failure is a fantastic learning lesson, but sometimes these brands, they get so scared that maybe the shareholders or whatever, or maybe the investors, if it's a smaller company, initial seed founders, seed, seed round, but they get so scared of putting a step wrong that they failed at TikTok, let's say, and then they pull back. How are they then going to find their community in Discord? So one of the things that's happening at the moment in the content world is that um, people are starting to talk about, do we actually release our content? Um, out onto the internet. So right now, as soon as this is recorded, it goes live, a language model is going to come by and scrape our conversation. And they're going to use our conversation without permission, our, our thoughts, our ideas, without permission and add it to their business. So what's going to happen is a lot of these conversations are going to become gated. They're going to go into Discord communities. They're going to go into Reddit. So Reddit doesn't want to be, what was it? It was Reddit that doesn't want to be scraped by the large language model. Correct. Well. And they're now charging incredible access costs. Same thing. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of this content is going to become gated, but if you don't, if you haven't failed at something, and if you're not in that experimental mode, then you're not moving with the time. So you won't know that Discord communities are massive now, absolutely massive. And Slack channel sometimes as well. Slack communities are absolutely massive. So I, Jason, this is the thing when you say, I mean, you make me feel anxious is that we have had those clients that have come to us and said, no, this is exactly how I want it. It's got to be like this. And you haven't nailed our tone of voice or whatever. And we just say, we're not for you. We are, we're just simply not for you. You go and go and find someone else that you can harass and work with to control that. What we are is this is what we stand for. We're very creative. We try experimental things. I've got a, we've got a style of content that we call fun, drunk, auntie. And that's what it is. It's not SEO based. It's not sensible. It's, I just go, Hey, this looks like fun. We once did a piece of content about puppuccinos. Everyone on the internet, all of SEOs have written articles about puppuccino recipes. And we thought, Oh, hang that. We're not doing that. So we literally got a hundred photos of dogs having puppuccinos. And we laughed the entire time that we were making that. Anyway, that, that piece of content for a couple of years, has ranked in the top three positions for 50,000 visitors a month. And it's fun, drunk, antique content. It's either dancing on the table, spectacularly entertaining everyone, or it's under the table, pass out fast, fast asleep. Doesn't, you never know whether it's going to work. But if you don't experiment, you don't find those little gaps. You don't find those edge cases in the market, in the channels, in the communities, in the technology, in the vibe of what you're going for. And so you never learn, you never get these leaps. So those companies that control their narrative, I think they grow step by step by step, just a little bit of a time. But other companies that have these leaps, it's a bit of a roller coaster. Sometimes it works and you learn an enormous amount. And sometimes I'm even seeing that some big corporates can nail it better than, than smaller businesses. If we think of, uh, I'm thinking of Samsung, I'm thinking of, of Freedom Air, I'm thinking of even Bose. They, for example, I follow, and these are huge global companies, and I follow them on TikTok, for example, and yet their content is, is super fun, it's super light, it's super entertaining, it's funny, it's engaging, it's not salesy. I, I think, I'm pretty sure it's Freedom Air or, or, one, or maybe it's Ryanair. One of them, they, they, they show the plane talking and, and telling stories with the overlay of the mouth. And, and these are huge companies, but they have figured out a way and I don't know whether it's like almost like a hit team inside the business that is given carte blanche to do whatever they want on the TikTok channel, but then all the other channels are buttoned down. I'm not quite sure how that works, but how are you seeing it work for some of these big corporates that absolutely nail it on a certain channel like TikTok, 
where it's hard to, it's nowadays, it's, it's so competitive on TikTok, it's hard to break through. But in some cases, these big companies are doing it even better than the little companies where you would think that the lawyers would come in and tell Samsung, for example, no, it can't be on TikTok. It's too, it's, it's, it's not business-like enough. You can't be on TikTok, uh, but yet they're absolutely crushing it. And you, you wonder how did they get past all the gatekeepers to even be on TikTok? Like you reminded me, do you remember the Wendy's Twitter account? I think it was Wendy's. It was year yes. ago. And there was someone running it and they were passive aggressive. And it was hilarious. Yes, you know, yes. They would, and they would take they the would, piss. They would take they the would, piss out of people. They would troll all these other brands. And I think that all these brands that you're talking about that are able to execute and they have the planes with the mountain, the talking, all this sort of thing. There's always someone who had to lead the way. So I don't actually think that they are often that creative. I think that what does happen, and maybe I'm being a little, being a bit too mean about this, but I think what they happen is they see something like the Wendy's account and they see something that works and then that ends them. They think it worked for Wendy's, look at the metrics. And of course they can't see the back end metrics, whether it's actually converting to sales, but they look at the, the glossy metrics at the front and they say, oh, Wendy's has now got all this press and all these backlinks and they've got this, this hustle going on. And then they can convince the boards often. You know, what I found as well with my career with working with billion dollar companies was that if I could uh, show that this works somewhere else, because the people making the decisions didn't really know what I was on about. This one company I worked for, it was literally a billion dollar company. And I registered their Twitter account and their Facebook page and all of this. They said to me, why are you doing that? We, we're not going to be on Facebook. And I was like, just trust me with this. You'll want this in a few years time. I know you're not ready for it now. These, there's a lot of people in those businesses that don't understand content marketing. They don't understand where it's going and they have to just trust the, the brand ambassadors like people like us who see where things are going. So I think they have to get courage from other accounts like the Wendy's account. I don't think that a lot of these big brands that it's truly their original courage. I think they take courage. From the Wendy's yeah. aggressive kind of. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is that secondhand courage comes into play yeah. in certain instances. And, yes. but some, but somebody had to start it and some, and, and maybe there was somebody rogue who was, when I think of that Wendy's uh, account and, and I've seen a few since then that have seemingly gone rogue. Yeah. And I always think to myself, is this someone that knows they're about to get fired and so they don't really care? Or is it somebody that maybe has almost like a vendetta against the business in some way? And so they're like, I'm in this powerful position. The old bogeys on the board level, they don't even know that we have a Twitter account, so they're definitely not going to give me shit for this. So I can go ham on Twitter in places where I like I couldn't do it anywhere else, but I could do it on Twitter because nobody even knows we have a Twitter. And I, I wonder what was the underlying scenario that led them to have the freedom to be able to go crazy in the first place? Because you, you're right, we do have these examples of trailblazers, even in the corporate world that have really broken the mold and have gone super entertaining and funny and sarcastic, et cetera. And those have led the way for other brands to follow suit. But it makes it does make me wonder sometimes what caused that to be able to be possible in the first place. Yeah, no, they knew exactly what they were doing. I'll tell you right now, they knew exactly what they were doing. But what would have done is it's exactly like what you were talking about at the sort of the head of this um, episode is that you find it after a while. So I will guarantee you that if we sat down and talked to the person who ran the Wendy's account, that we would find that they were just doing the usual thing, following the corporate line. And then one day they did something a tiny bit cheeky, a tiny bit. And then they saw a blip 
And then one day they went back to their boss and they said, oh, I got a little bit of traction on this one where I was a little bit funny. And then the boss said, oh, okay, that's fine. And then they thought, I'll push that edge a little bit more. And they tried something a little bit cheekier and that went. So I don't think that person woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm just going to try my best to trash this brand and just to start a Twitter war. I think what they would have done is I think they would have seen <laughs> something else, someone else being a little bit cheeky. They would have seen that word. They would have brought it in. They would have, because you, if you're running a Twitter account, if you've got the Twitter account for Wendy's, which again, it's like a, it's a multinational, it's, you're not going to, you're not going to horse around with it too much. You're not going to take too many risks with your job, but, and, and so I think it's easy, like exactly as you said, it's finding your path, but you can't find your path if you always color in between the lines. And so this is this thing of, you've got to be a little bit creative and you've got to let the creatives, you've got to let the reins off a little bit and let the creatives have a turn, but within the guidelines. And then you loosen the guidelines as you go along. I think this wonderful family friend of ours told us that he sets his boundaries for his children here, like a hand width apart. He's actually okay if they go outside of those boundaries. His real boundaries are a lot wider than what he sets for his children because he knows they're always going to go outside those boundaries. And I think it's the same with your content. If you can guide your content creation process and say, here are the boundaries. And then when those creatives go outside those boundaries a little bit, because they can't resist it, they can't resist stepping over the line. That's when you find those magic moments. Wow. And it, and it is it is magical because it is so rare that I think you see large companies, nameless, faceless companies. I think it's so rare that you see creative from them that is truly funny or entertaining or groundbreaking or informative uh, that you and you cannot look away. It is such a rare occurrence that when it happens, it stands out even more. I think if you go, wow, I would never have thought Wendy's would have said that. That's not what I would have expected from them or from McDonald's or from Nike or from even the brands that we would traditionally consider slightly more risque on the risque scale. When they go beyond their own boundaries in that regard, that gets cut through because all of a sudden now it's like, oh, they're going in a, they're going in a bit of a new direction. But then it can crazily sometimes go horribly wrong. Just ask about light. So when can it all go wrong? How can you get the tone? How can you be so tone deaf that you ignore your target market? And again, you would have thought that maybe in the vein of, of, of Wendy's that Bud Light would have created a, a, a positive wave in front of their brand. But now they've, they've, they've dropped multiple billions of dollars worth of, of market share and also share value. They've lost billions of dollars uh, over this Dylan Mulvaney thing. So can brands get too risque and can they get too far away from their target market and having empathy for their target market that they just get it completely friggin' wrong? I think the biggest and the funnest case of the last few months was remember when Google said, oh, oh we're releasing this AI, we've got our own AI, we've uh, got this own chatbot version and it's brilliant. And what was it they released? It was something like, what was it like the distance to Mars or something? It was some sort of, it was something about astronomy. And they got something terribly long. It's like, when was the moon landing or who landed on the moon or what time? It was some very specific thing. And they got the AI to tell us all about that. And they published it. And they released it. And they said, look at our AI. And a couple of science nerds were like, oh, hang on, excuse me, that's not quite right. And so they had to retract that. So that was like, that was a massive faux pas of someone doing this. This also the cases now with the AI where I think it was, I think I shouldn't say the name, but it was a big news organization. I think it was like ZDNet or CNET or something. And again, they were busted for releasing AI written content 
that was getting financial advice about how to calculate, I think it was how to calculate um, mortgages or something like this. And again, the maths was completely wrong in this. And yet they were taking money from advertisers and saying, we're able to produce this fantastic content and we'll highlight you on this content. And again, they had to pull all of that back and say, we're so sorry. And I think that I could understand the examples of Bud Light with these one sort of advertising plays, but there are, I think that what's going to happen in the future is that advertising is going to become a longer play. There's going to be less of these one hit blunders, wonders or blunders. And I think things are going to be a longer play. So there's things like, um, we've, we know a company called the Wanda Club and they uh, sell little tokens of, that you collect when you're traveling around the world. You've been to the Rocky Mountains or you've been to the Grand Canyon or whatever, and you put it on your little key ring. And those places don't advertise so much as they have a community. So they have this very strong Facebook community where they share their travel stories and say, oh, well, you can go and stay at this hotel at this particular place. Oh, I've got the little ring to prove it. So I think that advertising, I think that that is shifting back to the people. I think that control of the narrative is shifting back to the people. So when people like Bud, Bud Light Mob make a massive faux pas or Google or these news organizations, the community, the people rise up and comment on it and say, that's not right. You can't do it like that anymore. And so they're now controlling. I think people are now controlling the narrative. So with communities and with longer sales cycles of referrals and talking about brands. So I think that people can highlight and really they can, the masses can make your ad campaign a massive win or a massive fail. And what is that saying? That your brand is not what you say about you. It's what other people say about you, yeah. right? So yeah, exactly. I guess the, the reality is, is, is what the community, if you're not listening, if you're tone deaf and you're not listening yeah. to what the community is saying about your brand, then you're going to miss the mark more than you're going to hit it. So I guess what you're saying, if I was to interpret it is you better have your finger on the pulse of your community as much as you possibly can. And in fact, if you can get the community to create the content on your behalf, whether that be through incentivization, gamification, whatever it is, the more content the community can create instead of you directly, probably the less, less risky it's going to be for you as the brand. Yeah, totally. And there's also some fun things. I'll give you one more example. There's a brand called Chizos.com and C-H-I-S-O, if anyone wants to check it out. And they uh, create the most beautiful cowboy boots, Texan cowboy boots. And the founder cuts them in half on video. And so we see, he's, and he's taken this idea from that whole unboxing effect. It's this whole thing of, will it blend? I don't know if you remember those campaigns, the will it blend? There was this. Oh, I love the company. will it blend campaign. That funny. Yeah, yeah. And they would put forks in or they would, will it blend? They would put an egg in. Yes, that blends. They'd put in a, a part of a car. Will it blend? All these ridiculous things to show how robust their machine was. And so anyway, Chizos, the founder of Chizos, this fellow, he on video, he cuts his boots in half and they're $1,000 boots. I don't know how much they are. $500 boots, $1,000 boots. He cuts these boots in half and then he also cuts his competitor's boots in half. And it's hilarious because he's got the whole hacksaw out and there's the machine and the sparks are flying. And then he just walks through and says, walks through, excuse the pun, walks through and says, this is the difference between this. And so that kind of pop of an ad, I cannot believe he's cut these, all these different boots in. I love that brand. I love this competitor brand and he's cutting them in half and oh, they're not made the same as this other brand. And so I think that's what I mean by this creative thing where he engages the community that loves Texas or loves cowboy boots. And he creates this very compelling story. And of course he is able to sell the 
the features and benefits of his own product through it. But that's exactly what you're talking about with the community engagement with the ad, so to speak, is what is actually important. It's the storytelling and it's creating this longer play with the ads, so to speak. So an ad now can be 30 minutes long. We're cutting this boot in half or an ad can be months long where someone engages with a community. They're engaged with a particular Facebook group. So I think that those sort of one hit wonders, they have their moments and they have their uses for big businesses, but I don't think that the the global sort of giants get creative enough. And so they're not really exploring the newer areas where they can play. And what would be your, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I really appreciate you sharing from your extensive experience in the industry, what, I mean, how fun and entertaining this has been, but what would be if, let's say I'm a mid-sized brand, I'm doing, I don't know, I'm, I'm doing $50 million a year in GMV, so I'm not massive, but I'm not tiny anymore. I've got a few resources. I've probably got a, I don't know, I've probably got a, I've probably got a marketing manager on my team and maybe a couple of content people on my team. So we're small enough that we're not bound by big corporate speak and a legal team, but we, let's say we're not naturally that creative. How do we start to dabble? How do we start to experiment? How do we start to play around with, especially some of these new mediums that really require a a reasonably high level of creativity to get cut through? Where does, where do brands like that start? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. It's actually quite easy. What you do is you go and find very creative people who are doing uh, creative work, you find good copywriters that write with humor and you ask them for a plan, a content plan. And you say, you pay them X amount of money, a thousand dollars, write me a, a content plan for what you would do, what sort of content you would produce. And then once they've written that whole plan out and you've got that plan, and then you say to them, now I want you to do something for me with a $5,000 budget. And that's all that you've got. I want one little test thing out of your plan. So the idea is that you, these marketing managers in the, the mid-tier companies, they will have an SEO team running all their SEO content and all their backlinking. You've got a plan from those guys. And that's like just saying every morning you need to brush your teeth. Just be a functioning human, be a functioning brand and have an SEO plan. And they will take care of all the really standard, regular content. What you do is you go and find a whole bunch of creatives and you ask them, you say, if you had any budget at all, Write me what that plan is. There's no budget. But what you're actually paying for is just their ideas for a wild dream. And then what you can say to them is, now I want you to pick one, your best idea out of that big plan. And I want you to execute on one thing and your maximum budget is this amount of money. So it's this thing of this fabulous friend of mine, a colleague of mine taught me this idea. He said, every year he takes three bets. He takes three big bets where he spends a substantial amount of money and he always spends that money. He sets it aside in his marketing budget and he says, I'm going to spend this amount of money on three bets that will either fail or be successful. And either way, I will learn from something. And so I would say to those marketing managers, go and find anyone, any creative, pay them for a big plan and then get them to execute for a few thousand dollars on one tiny idea, get them to track that idea until tell you what happened with it. And that's your bet for the year. And that's that whole throwing the, the line out and seeing what comes in and throwing it out again and seeing what comes in. But you only have to do it three times a year to find something that might work. Wow. Absolutely fantastic tip. I absolutely love it. That, that is actually a genius, I, I think, approach that is accessible to almost any no, brand really. of any size because they'll have some sort of marketing budget and it scales 
it scales with your business, right? It's just the size of the bet gets bigger if you get bigger and if you have a bigger yeah. budget. So it, it is a cool approach to trying to bring some wild creativity to your brand in some way, which I think is, you got to disrupt yourself. Otherwise, somebody else is going to do it, right? So you might as well attempt to dis disrupt yourself from inside. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, are they best to reach out to you on LinkedIn? I'll put yeah. your links in the show notes for your business as well as you. But do, do you prefer people go to your website, come to LinkedIn? How do you want people to get a hold of you? Just LinkedIn. LinkedIn is fine, Jason. That's where all the cool kids hang out. Wow, LinkedIn it is. Fantastic. We'll put your profile in the show notes. Uh, I will also uh, link to, of course, copies.com in the show notes as well. I've seriously enjoyed our conversation. You clearly know your stuff. You've been doing this for a long time now, over a decade now. So you definitely should know what you're doing because you're an expert at this. So I really appreciate you sharing from your experience, sharing some fun stories that you've lived throughout your career. And I really appreciate you helping us all level up our content game to be better and to take more risks to try to get some cut through in this increasingly noisy world in which we live. So I really appreciate it. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page and click Get Mentored by Jason.